Thanks, Joe. Um, if you are here for the first time, or the first time in a few weeks, maybe you read along with us this afternoon, and that's pretty intriguing, or maybe pretty shocking. Um, but what we're doing is we're walking through the book of Joshua and looking at the story of God's people being brought under Joshua's leadership into God's land. And we believe that every week as we turn it up, as we read it, God speaks to us. And we believe that not only does he show us a bit of what, he, uh, of what he's like, but actually what that means for us today. Um, so let's pray that we would um, hear that from God today uh, and that we would respond to what he is like. Father, um, we thank you that every page of your word uh, you speak to us in. Lord, please would you help us to listen to what you have to say to us this afternoon and respond accordingly. Amen. How do you rally the troops when you've let yourselves down? I was uh, at university in my second year. I was in a rugby team and I was a captain for a year. And my uh, favourite ever coach uh, was the coach at the time, a guy called Tim Farnden. He was a big man in every direction and he was fierce but fair. Sometimes a bit more fierce but most of the time he was fierce and fair. He was uh, pretty petrifying at times. His job alongside coaching uh, rugby was he worked in elite close protection. I didn't really know what that means meant at the time, but what it means is he worked as a personal bodyguard to MMA fighters and boxers ringside and uh, in those kind of moments. So you can, you're starting to get the picture, I hope, of Tim Farnden, uh, this coach. And um, as the captain of the team, occasionally there would be times where he'd ask me if I wanted to say anything to the team uh, after he'd delivered uh, a few uh, blows, not uh, literal blows, just some uh, helpful instruction. Uh, but I remember very vividly one afternoon, a Wednesday afternoon in November, in driving rain, where we came into the clubhouse at half time and we were having a very difficult match. And you can imagine, uh, we're sat around heads, uh, pretty low, cold, not enjoying life. And Tim Farnham walks in and he delivers uh, a pretty damning speech. He said, we're pathetic. He said, we've let ourselves down. He shouted quite a lot. He was pretty fierce in that moment, but actually pretty fair. And after his five minutes of rage but quite helpful um, items to talk about he left the door with a slammed door and I sat there with my head low picked my head up to look around the room and everybody else in the room um, hang, hanging their head as well and I realised in that moment it was up to me to say something and it was difficult because for the most part he was right and there was little we could do and there was little I could do to bring any initiative in the moment. I felt pretty deflated, as did the rest of the team. It was difficult to know what to say. How do you rally the troops when you've let yourselves down? Remember last week, if you were here, it all went wrong for God's people. Complacency kills as Achan has his head turned by shiny stuff that God has specifically forbidden. He sees, he wants, 
He takes, he hides. And his sin infects and contaminates and it destroys among the people of God. There must be consequences because God is fiercely and consistently angry at sin. And so that's why last week Israel are defeated by the people of Ai that we see again this week. But sin is serious and so it must be rooted out. And Achan and his family are killed. They're buried under a pile of stones. And we finished last week, chapter 7, with the words, Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. So God's people have messed up. The conquest is well and truly on pause in chapter 7. But what now? What now in that moment? Is God still angry? Have his people blown it? And maybe you even came away from last week feeling pretty low, very conscious maybe of the weight of sin. Where do you go from there when you feel like that? Maybe you feel pretty weak and feeble, deflated. Well, as we join chapter 8 this week, the first thing we see is God's initiative. Just have a look at verse 1. As soon as sin is dealt with, God's anger is removed and he takes the initiative in what's to come. Look down at verse 1. Then the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Take the whole army with you and go up and attack I, for I have delivered into your hands the king of I, his people, his city and his land. See, God's removing two pretty big, potential roadblocks for Joshua fear and discouragement God's giving Joshua reassurance in that moment you don't need to be afraid you can totally imagine just look back to last week what happened you can totally see how Joshua would have been feeling so fragile on behalf of his people but now this is God's divine initiative Do you see, when we ask the question, have God's people blown it? Is God still angry? We're in danger of falling into the trap of thinking of God's anger is like ours. You know when you make someone angry? And then it's resolved. But there's still that kind of awkward phase afterwards, isn't there? Where you're delicately treading on eggshells around them because you know they're probably still holding a grudge against you. When you come off the back of human conflict, you're likely to fall into fear and discouragement. And if we act like that with God, well, then it's scary. Because he is, as we've seen, consistently and completely good. And so he is fierce and he is fair. But God says to Joshua, don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Because he is our faithful God. He is consistently for his people. He takes initiative here. And so the joy of chapter 8 as we look is he takes the initiative to deliver his people. And look at verse 1. Do you see the tense of the victory against I? Did you see it there? For I have delivered into your hands the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. 
God's saying, because it's my initiative, it will happen. With the certainty of God's power, the great city of Jericho was defeated. But without it, the tiny city of Ai routed Israel. But here, Joshua is given certainty because this is God's divine initiative. And so as these two verses set up the rest of the chapter, we see the rest of the chapter split in two. First, the conquest resumed. And second, as you probably saw in 30 to 35, the covenant renewed. So first, conquest resumed. Joshua has been given his instructions. And so Joshua sends the people out with the orders. Take 30,000 of his best fighting men to go behind the city. And Joshua and his men, well, they go out and lure from the front with few men, just like last week. When the people come out from the city of Ai, they're to engage in battle. Then the rest of God's people waiting behind are going to ambush the city. So they spend the night set up camp, and while the ambush party is waiting to the west of the city, they get ready. And it works like a charm. The king of Ai and all the men of the city charge out. Joshua and the Israelites, the small army, let themselves get driven back and flee towards the wilderness. Do you remember last time a small army get driven back in fear and terror as they're routed by the people of Ai? And this time, just a few thousand in front of I, because of their careful tactics in trickery. Last time, it was poor planning, complacency. This time, it's strategic planning. And look at verse 17, just have a look down. Not a man remained in I or Bethel who did not go after Israel. They left the city open and went in pursuit of Israel. It works like a charm. Just like last week where a few thousand men in front of the city, they go out but leave no one there. It works exactly as planned. The city is wide open. And you get this horrible moment for the people of Ai. Look at verse 20. The men of Ai looked back. And saw the smoke of the city rising up into the sky, but they had no chance to escape in any direction. The Israelites who had been fleeing towards the wilderness had turned back against their pursuers. For when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had taken the city and that smoke was going up from it, they turned around and attacked the men of Ai. Those in the ambush also came out of the city against them, so that they were caught in the middle. With Israelites on both sides, Israel cut them down, leaving them neither survivors nor fugitives, but they took the king of Ai alive and brought him to Joshua. That horrible moment, as they look back, not only is the city going up in smoke, but the people that they're convinced that they're going to rout, just like last week, turn back, ready to engage in conflict, and at that point they realise they're surrounded on all sides by the people of Israel. Thousands on thousands. And that's where we get some quite unsettling detail. Look at verse 26. For Joshua did not draw back the hand that held out his javelin until he had destroyed all who lived in Ai. Israel 
killed every last person. God's divine initiative was absolute. And look at verse 28. There's something of a reflection of what's happened in the previous chapter, chapter 7. So Joshua burned Ai and made it a permanent heap of ruins, a desolate place to this day. He impaled the body of the king of Ai on a pole and left it there until evening. At sunset, Joshua ordered them to take the body from the pole and throw it down at the entrance of the city gate. And they raised a large pile of rocks over it, which remains there to this day. Do you see, this is a demonstration of God's judgment on a people that stand against him. Two reasons that we can see as God's judgment. One, in Deuteronomy, God's people are given some pretty specific laws of how they're to act and behave within um, battle. This is what it says in Deuteronomy 21, verse 22. If someone guilty of a capital offence is put to death and their body is exposed on a pole, you must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day because anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. You see, the people of Israel, they're keeping God's law about how to conduct themselves in battle, but specifically on how to engage in someone who is under God's curse. They didn't just hang this man on a pole because they thought it was really fun or particularly brutal, but it it was how they were to act. Second, because just like Achan last week, under a large pile of rocks, there was an example of what was going on. Just like Achan, it's a picture of God's consistent faithfulness. Because he's angry at sin. The land of Canaan is not a neutral place. This is a people that are standing against God and against his people. And so God, in his faithfulness, in one complex plan at the same time, is delivering his perfect justice against those who stand against him and delivering an imperfect people who take him at his word. And so we see God completely faithful, completely consistent in who he is, delivering a people for himself. And we see the way that he does that is by his covenant. And so secondly, in verses 30 to 35, we see the covenant renewed. Remembering the conquests of God's people so far through Joshua in the last few weeks, there's been a number of pause moments. Circumcision, raising up stones, celebrating Passover. They're moments to pause and recognise and remember God's faithfulness. And verse 30 to 35, it's another pause moment. Read with me from verse 30. Then Joshua built on Mount Ebal an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites. He built it according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no iron tool had been used. On it, they offered to the Lord burnt offerings and sacrificed fellowship offerings. There in the presence of the Israelites, Joshua wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses. All the Israelites with their elders, officials and judges were standing on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, facing the Levitical priests who carried it. 
Both the foreigners living among them and the native-born were there. Half of the people stood in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Ebal. As Moses, the servant of the Lord, had formally commanded when he gave instructions to bless the people of Israel. Afterward, Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, just as it is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and children and the foreigners who lived among them. Do you see, there's lots going on there, but quite simply they're reminding themselves of all they've seen about God. Some of the details, the two mountains, the two halves of people, the reading of the whole law, it's all about affirming the whole of the law, the blessings and the curses. It's a recognition that God's way is the best way. And if we stand against him as a people, we'll face judgment. It's the contract between God and his people of what we've seen played out of what God is like in the last two chapters. And so God's people are affirming this is a good thing. It's the people looking at all God has to say in his instruction in the last few chapters, as well as the whole of the book of the law. And maybe you look across the last two chapters and you think, well, is that really what we want to affirm is good? Is that really what we want to affirm is the best way? Because that's what God's people are doing. Well, think for a moment of a fish. A fish is made to have life in water. It's creatively designed so that it flourishes in that environment. Imagine you're a fish made for the water. That's where you belong. That's where life flourishes. Yet you look on the outside of your fish tank back home and you look at the carpet and you look at the sofa and you think, oh, that that does look quite comfy. That does look quite nice. Maybe I'll just, maybe I'll just jump out and have a, have a little lounge around. It looks like a place of life. Maybe I'll really enjoy it there. But it's stupid, isn't it? If you're a fish, you jump out onto the sofa, onto the floor. You're jumping out of the context for which you have life. You're made for the water. <coughs> Choosing to move away... Choosing to move out of that context is choosing death. A fish, out of its right context, quickly dies. And so we are made for God. We're made to find life in him. We're made for a relationship with him. And so choosing to leave him is choosing death. Choosing to exclude him from areas of our life is choosing a taste of death. And ultimately choosing to exclude him from our life at all is ultimately choosing death. God's saying to his people here, accept and enjoy the blessings of living with me as your Lord 
And if you accept that, you'll accept life. And if you accept the opposite, if you reject that, you are are accepting the curses attached. God's people are committing themselves to life God's way. Did you see what they do as they make that decision? Did you see what they're making? Just have a look back down to what they're doing. They're building an altar. Why? Well, because here's the reality for a people who get it wrong. They need a way for God's right anger at sin to be turned away. There needs to be a solution for when they get it wrong. We've seen God's consistent faithfulness, even to a people who get it wrong. There is a right design for life in God. There is a need to cling to a faithful God. There is right judgment against people who stand against the holy God. But now, what we see as they build this provision is there's a provision for a people who get it wrong. Here's the hope for us. Even the God who is consistently angry at wrong, because he must be because he is consistently good, even the God who is consistently just in his judgment provides a way for his anger to be satisfied and his people to be brought back. That's what we saw at the end of last week. That's what we saw at the beginning of the chapter. That's what we see as the altar is built. God provides a way for his people. Look look at what it has to say in Hebrews 10 as it talks about the sacrifice that is made on the altar. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time he waits for enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write their name on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Do you see the difference in the new covenant? In the blood not of animals or on an altar, but the blood of the Lord Jesus spilt for us. This is the new covenant. Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Do you see the completely incomplete solution for Joshua and his people? To commit to the covenant and to sacrifice on the altar for their shortcomings. Those sacrifices they only ever pointed to the one true sacrifice. But that is no longer incomplete for us. In Christ, in the new covenant, 
There is now no condemnation of God's judgment because our sin is dealt with. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Do you see, in that moment of deflation, of feeling uncomfortable at the weight of sin, there's no longer that need for the uncomfortable look around the dressing room. Where do we go from here? We've let ourselves down. If the question of last week was, where do you not take sin seriously? Where do you not think about it? Where do you not fight it? Where do you not root it out? The question today is, where are you in danger of thinking your sin still brings condemnation? Where are you in danger of letting past sin cloud your thinking? Where are you in danger of not letting go of the sin that has been confessed and repented of? You see, that there is no need to wallow in self-pity. There is no need to repeatedly go to self-criticism or self-condemnation about the things that we have got wrong. Because if you trust in Jesus, you have been made perfect by his sacrifice. And you are being made holy by the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. See, for the people of Israel in Joshua, God's character is completely consistent. He's angry at sin and just in judgment. And he is completely faithful. And as soon as he deals with the sin of Achan, it's dealt with its business as usual. He is there, faithfully providing for his people. And he simply wants them to listen to his voice, the very best thing for them, the context in which they'll find life and flourish. And yet we'll see they repeatedly fail. For us, he's given us the Lord Jesus for when we repeatedly fail. He's given us the right context for life. He wants us to flourish, experience life to its very best. All that we heard last week stands true. And yet, in the Lord Jesus, we don't stand condemned. We don't need to feel the weight of sin and shame and judgment. We're free to enjoy him. Enjoy life in the way it was designed to be. To flourish in its right context. And as we enjoy it, we are being transformed. For that to become our most natural inclination to want to, desperately want to enjoy life as it was meant to be. So that we will flourish. We will taste life and not death. We won't have shame hanging over us as we cling to the Lord Jesus. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for your initiative. We thank you that ultimately you have provided the Lord Jesus who gave his life for us. Lord, thank you that in him 
we can flourish in life, enjoy life as it was given to be. Lord, please would you help us do that this afternoon, this evening, and for the days, weeks, months, years to come. Amen. Well, we're going to stand and sing together as we um, celebrate and we sing to our Lord the lesson.